hey folks, mark your calendars because on April 27th, we'll be launching our new book, which is of course titled Love as a Business Strategy. Visit loveasabusinessstrategy.com for more info and sign up for a chance to get a free copy. And if you're interested in bringing love as a business strategy to your organization, we are now offering free mini sessions of our globally resonant Seneca Leaders training experience. These mini sessions dive into three topics to help begin transforming leadership behaviors and influencing culture for the better. Space is limited, so visit softway.com events to learn more and RSVP now. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Love as a Business Strategy, a podcast that brings humanity to the workplace. We're here to talk about business, but we want to tackle topics that most business leaders shy away from. We believe that humanity and love should be at the center of every successful business. I'm your host, Jeff Ma. I'm just kidding. Uh, it's me. It's Frank. I'm hosting. It seems that I, I, I'm the one who hosts when Dr. Rod Brace is with us. Um, and now that that tradition has been set, because this is the second time I've done it, I think that's what we're going to do for the remainder of Love's a Business Strategy. I am a director at Softway, a business-to-employee solutions company that creates products and offers services that help build resilience in high-performing company cultures. Each episode of Love's a Business Strategy, we're diving into one element of business or strategy and testing our theory of love against it. Today, we've got quite a few special guests. I think this is the first time in Love's a Business Strategy that we have more guests than team members from Softway, and I'm very excited to be outnumbered. We've got Dr. Rod Brace, a previous guest of the show, as I mentioned earlier. We've got Siraj Anwar and Dr. Michael Shabbat. It's packed. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks, Frank. Great to be here. Yeah. Okay, so I'd like to introduce each of you in a little bit more detail. So I want to start with uh, Dr. Rod Brace and Dr. Michael Shabbat. You are both founding partners of Relia Healthcare Advisors, which provides expertise in high-reliability organizational models, quality and safety cultural assessments, service line and ambulatory network design, I think I said that correctly, and leadership strategy. Dr. Shabbat, you formerly served as Executive Vice President and System Chief Clinical Officer of Memorial Hermann Health System in Houston, Texas. Dr. Shabbat also serves as an adjunct professor at the UT Health School of Biomedical Informatics and UT Health School of Public Health. Michael also serves on the Board Quality Committee of the Mercy System, St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Shabbat received his medical degree from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School. He is board certified in general surgery and surgery critical care. Dr. Rod Brace is a retired as regional president and chief learning officer for the Memorial Hermann Health System in Houston, Texas. Rod served 30 years in operational positions, including chief regional operations officer and hospital CEO, COO, in nonprofit and investor-owned health systems. Rod is a national speaker, author, and executive coach. He holds an MBA and PhD in management with a research emphasis in employee engagement, organizational cultures, and leadership. Remember, I told you, listeners, this is a packed house. It is indeed packed. Last but certainly not least, I have Siraj Anwar. This gentleman is the Senior Vice President of Chief Health Informatics Officer at Harris Health System. Also an adjunct assistant professor at UT Health School of Biomedical Informatics. Wait a second, there's a connection here. And voluntary clinical assistant professor at University of Houston College of Medicine, Department of Clinical Sciences. Siraj obtained his medical degree from the University of Mysore, India, and worked as a primary care physician before pursuing a full-time career in informatics. He currently serves as the Chief Health Informatics Officer at Harris Health System, which is the fourth largest safety net health system in the United States. 
In this role, he leads the informatics and data science operations for the entire health system. Suraj is passionate about leveraging information technology, data, and human relationships to provide patient care that has high quality and high reliability and has been doing this since 2001. Gentlemen, I read all that. So now I am ready to break the ice a little bit and have a quick conversation. I, we, we, we start off with icebreakers uh, with, in this podcast. Rod, you're familiar with this. And yeah. I, by the way, yeah. by the way, we, he goes, yeah, Unfortunately, way, we, yes. we know Rod and Michael very well to the point where if it's okay, I can, I can say Rod and Michael uh, during our conversation here. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Brace. So Rod, first question to you, would you rather get away with every lie you told or be able to tell when anyone was lying? Oh, be able to tell when others are lying by far. I mean, there's so many interactions that the end result would change drastically if I had known that they were lying. That would be a superpower. That indeed would be a very powerful tool. Okay, Michael, question for you. Would you rather visit 100 years in the past, which would put us in a pandemic, and or rather 100 years in the future? Well, I'd love to do both, but given the choice, I would love to visit 100 years in the future. I'd like to see what what's coming. Excellent. You go you go 100 years in the past, and folks are still wearing masks. Um, well, they broke Suraj, out at roughly around uh, uh, 1821, but uh, they did wear masks, and it was controversial at that time as well. By the way, hmm. not political. Uh, but just controversial. But controversial, yeah. I saw a I saw a picture of an entire family standing there, and they had a little cat. That one, one the gentleman was holding a cat, and the cat had a mask. So, <laughs> Siraj, I wanted to ask you a question. Would you rather have in, infinite battery power for your cell phone, mm. or infinite fuel? We could say battery power for your car. Mm. Oh mm. my goodness, that's a tough one. <clears throat> yeah. I am I am a car enthusiast, so I would mm-hmm. say the unlimited ability. To just drive around, I would take that over to the cell phone. So unlimited battery or fuel in the car. Any day. Too, and you can recharge your phone from the- There we go. Hey, hey. Good point. Good point. Dr. So- I was I was just gonna leave the I was just gonna leave the phone at home so no one bothers <laughs> me while I'm driving. But yes, that's you don't a good need- point. You don't even need it, but yes, you have an infinite power source for your phone, so everybody wins. So thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate it. And I want to get us started because I use the word informatics a lot, and and I want to I want to get everyone up to speed that are, that are listening to Love's a Business Strategy. Suraj, so I would like for you to kind of kick off what you're doing. Tell us a little bit about the world in which you live in, and and what this world of informatics actually is and does. Absolutely, I, I think speaking to what I do on a day to day basis is actually um, the best way to describe informatics. So. In my role, what I'm responsible for at Harris Health is ensuring that all of the IT and I mean, information technology in general, how are we embedding it into the clinical workflows of our physicians, nurses, pharmacists, anybody who takes care of the patient, anybody who has something to do with the patient experience, how do we ensure that it is optimal for their workflow? It isn't adding undue burden Um, It isn't introducing new errors or new issues that might reach the patient. So that's one aspect of the work that I do. So 
I have a team that is, you know, focused on, you know, the physician experience aspect, the nursing experience aspect, and everybody else, obviously, right? So pharmacy, you think about it as well. They're probably the three key players. So how do we ensure that all of the tools and technology that are being used by those different clinical users is optimal for their workflow? So working with them closely, understanding their workflows, understanding their needs to make the right decisions throughout the uh, steps of providing care to the patient. That's one aspect of it. Now, once you implement information technology into the clinical workflow, there's gonna be lots of you know, hands on the keyboard, hands on the mouse, and lots of interactions, lots of documentation, lots of clicks, lots of navigation. What that does is it creates this enormous amount of data, mm. okay? So the, the other aspect of my job is taking that data and building something meaningful that helps us to understand how are we performing as a healthcare system? How am I performing as a physician or a nurse? Um, so, so that second aspect of my job, I, I like, I, I use the analogy of, you know, you have this truckloads and truckloads of Lego blocks, and then you have to figure out, okay, can I make something really beautiful and meaningful out of it? So we take those data elements and build it into something that's meaningful. So it could be in the form of a report that shows how, um, you know, often we are scanning medications as well as the patient's identification uh, band 100% of, I mean, are we close to 100% of the time? You know, that's an example. Uh, are we documenting the risk that a patient may have for a fall when they're in the hospital system every day and as soon as they come in? So it's, it really helps us to tell the story of either success or failure or opportunities for optimization of the clinical workflow. So you put that all together, that is your world of informatics. Wow. You know, it, Siraj, it sounds like somebody that have the ability to bring that information, that amount of improvement to a team would have people lined up at their door wanting you to help them. Experience tells me that that's not the case, that people oftentimes push back on this. Maybe talk a little bit about the dynamic of uh, what you do and maybe the challenges of getting people to accept that data. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good segue into one of my stories, right? So I'll start by telling the story about, um, and I'm sure Dr. Shabbat might have been at that meeting, if I remember correctly, <laughs> but we were at a meeting Probably. Um, Probably. Going, going, over some, going over some, you know, new interventions that we had built into the system. Um, you know, we call them clinical decision support alerts. It's a very commonly used form of an intervention that, you know, is called just-in-time, you know, helps with just-in-time decision-making. And I remember, I can't remember the exact concept, but it was essentially, you know, physicians are taking care of the patient and they're about to order something for the patient. And, you know, this alert pops up and tells them, hey, doc, doctor, so-and-so, you should really consider, you know, this piece of data that we're presenting to you because it might lead to you know, a potential adverse drug event. And adverse drug events are pretty common in the healthcare industry. That's when a patient has like a bad reaction to a medication or a combination of meds. And I remember, you know, um, one of the physicians, you know, telling us that, you know, those alerts are so interruptive. You know, I get them all the time. You know, can, can we like make them smarter or 
you know, make them less interruptive or intrusive. And I was just like, oh, absolutely. I mean, that's the kind of feedback we're always looking for. And, you know, we're happy to work with you offline. We try to stay away from those types of conversations um, in these, you know, uh, group gatherings, because, you know, I just think it's better served offline in an intimate, you know, um, environment. So, of course, I, I go back and I'm like, hey, let's let's go find out what's going on with, you know, with the doctor, because he said that he gets these alerts all the time and it's starting to be in, in you know, intrusion to his work. So I'm like, OK, let's let's go get the data and we get the data. And, you know, to, to my surprise, of course, I scratched my head a little bit because I was like, so this doctor actually got the alert, what, three times in a total month? <laughs> How is that all the time? And so I was like, okay, I obviously need to have this conversation, right? Because I've got to figure out, is this three too much for him? Is it his perspective that three is one too many, right? So I remember having the conversation of like, hey, you know, I, I, I have that follow-up data. I'd really like to get that, you know, sit down with you and go over it. And you know, I had the date in my hand and I was just like, so uh, doctor, it looks like um, you were getting these alerts. Um, I'm glad we were able to validate that, but I was just a little, you know, surprised by the number of alerts that you got. It shows here that you only got three, right? And I, I could just tell, you know, the look on his face, he was just like, yeah, yeah, you're right. And it was just like, well, were any of those alerts inappropriate in your mind? And he was just like, no, not really. Um, they were appropriate. And I was like, and did it take you too much time to, you know, bypass these alerts? I mean, is there any way that we can make them smarter? And of course, the conversation was, no, not really. It's fine. So what we find is often, you know, the first few times that we interact with people and uh, we're trying to add something into their workflow, right, that they're not used to, there's always going to be resistance because it's, it's a matter of, yeah, we're taking care of these patients. We know what we're doing. Why do we need you to tell us, you know, this additional piece of information? I always check the allergies uh, for my patients. I always check whether, uh, you know, um, my patients are on different drugs that they may be interacting with. But, um, you know, eventually once we sit down and we talk to them, I've received several anecdotes from physicians that I've, you know, over the years, obviously, I've built relationships with them. And I, I can't tell you the number of times I've actually had physicians thank me. It's like, hey, that new alert that you put in, the new intervention that we put in, it actually, you know, prevented me and made me think twice about, mm. you know, ordering this medication. So it's that first, uh, I mean, to Rod's question about, you know, my experience, it's usually, you know, hey, this is, this is our domain, stay out of it. Um, Usually I preface my conversations with some of these physicians by letting them know, right? I, I essentially qualify my conversations with them. One of the first things I say is, hey, by the way, I'm a physician as well, uh, by background, by training. I know what it's like to take care of patients. But, um, you know, once I say that, it, it eases them into the conversation. But once I build their trust, um, again, to Rod's question, that's when I get inundated with ideas and questions and feedback. And it's like, it's like I don't have enough time to give to them. So initially, it's that resistance, but building that trust, working on those relationships equates to, oh, my gosh, there's just not enough of me to go around and help people. 
And, you know, Dr. Shabat will tell you that once we really started doing this work, the demand was so immense. I was one person and one person only for the entire healthcare system. Oh, my goodness. But by that time, hey, by that time yes, yes. No excuse. <laughs> oh, there we go. Really quick. <laughs> right. But, but by the time I left, and this is in a span of about 12 years, uh, we were a team of 28 team members. Right. Right. So it just goes to show that, yes, once you develop those relationships and create that awareness in the healthcare organization about the power of data, about the power of informatics, people will really like, they won't hesitate to knock on your door. But let me, let me challenge a little something. That particular doctor may have had three of those alerts in that month. But, uh, and one of them may have stuck in his craw and that's why he remembered to, it was so distinctive that he remembered to complain about it. But he may have had 300 other kinds of alerts and reminders. Um, the um, uh, advent of the uh, electronic health record has uh, not only produced a lot of data, it's produced a lot of opportunity for notifications to clinicians, nurses, and physicians. And sometimes the easiest answer to a clinical problem is to add another task or message for a nurse or a pharmacist or a doctor. And it's the cumulative weight of all those that really, you know, gets, gets, gets clinicians down. And, uh, you know, what's the answer that uh, all these things, and, you know, I, I will, confess to being, um, you know, among the worst, meaning wanting more and more and more of these, especially relating to safety and high reliability of these um, uh, 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 alerts and reminders going to clinicians. But, you know, how do you keep the sum total under control with all the kind of inputs that you get from a health system? Oh, well, now, you know, yeah. Siraj, I, I think it's important you pointed out the connection between trusting you, the holder of this data, and uh, willingly listening to it. Because so many organizations over the history of time have used data as a stick, as a punitive measure. And when you establish that relationship that, no, we're, we're going to use the data to help you improve, then it's uh, it's less threatening to people. And, and just for the listeners, I think we can't underestimate the how hard it is for an expert to change. So in other words, physicians are experts. And the nature of being an expert, uh, as Siraj and Michael knows, was years and years of study, and then typically go through a residency program that sort of indoctrinated them to a way of doing something, thousands and thousands of hours of practice to make sure that they have a sense of security and knowing that the approach that they're taking to healthcare is safe and effective. And then all of a sudden, someone comes up to them in the hallway and says, I have a report that says you need to change. I think we, ha we have to recognize that that's a tremendous ask of that person to sort of set aside those thousands and thousands of hours of work and study and knowledge that got them to that point. And so I, I think starting with that, here's the data, here's the trusting relationship, it's a safe environment, good psychological safety here for us to look at this together. Uh, important point that you made, Siraj. 
Oh, thank you. Thank you. So uh, let me address uh, Dr. Shabit's qu question. Uh, I can clearly see he's wanting to put me on the hot seat. So yes. um, let, me, let me address um, the concern with um, the inundation of alerts or interventions, right? So one of the things that, you know, is the principles of high reliability is, is, is deference to expertise, right? And who, who better than the clinicians that we work with, right? So if there is ever a problem that we want to solve, um, we, we don't go out there and just say, hey, here's a problem and here's how we're going to solve it. This is what it's going to look like. What we do is make sure we have a good understanding of the problem. Um, let's, let's figure out if there's data out there that will help us really understand the extent of the problem. And when you have that data that shows the extent of the problem, we approach those experts and really, you know, ask the, the question of, hey, you know, um, there was a recent event, right? You, a lot of times this is driven by an event or something that happened. And so, you know, we take the premise of that event and work with these experts, our clinical experts, more as, as a partner, right? Not as a customer. Um, but more as a partner. And, you know, we just ask those prodding questions like, hey, so this problem occurred. Can you help us understand what are the clinical workflows, you know, that typically occur in this kind of a scenario? And it's like, what is the kind of data that's captured? And that really helps us to go and find that data to tell the story. And then you take mm -hmm. that data and you come back to them and you say, you know what, we looked at the workflow a little bit more closely and here's some data to show, you know, the, the extent of the problem and oftentimes, you know, the clinicians are like, oh, my goodness, we didn't realize that, you know, this problem was so, so big or so extensive. And then it comes down to, well, what do you think would help the clinicians to identify these kinds of issues or problems earlier on in their clinical workflow so that these kinds of errors don't happen or issues don't happen? Mm -hmm. And oftentimes when you approach them with that kind of a you know, collaborative spirit. And of course, you're building trust along the way, right? Because you're constantly listening. There's more listening that happens during these stages. And, and what happens is that they become a part of the solutioning, right? They're, they're, they're never the part of the problem. We never approach it that way. And we're not just handing solutions to them because they're working with us on the solution. And so ultimately what happens is they're amenable to the changes that you're making because they understand the extent of the problem. They understand what it means to the care we provide to our patient, the quality of care. And, and, and we're working on building something that is, you know, really not as workflow intrusive. There might be some workflow intrusion, but it's at the cost of, you know, making it safer for our patient, building that high reliability environment. But yeah. they, they have to be agreeable to it. So ultimately... You know, we're building something that they agree with. And the whole communication model that we usually cater is we take those clinicians with us and we let them communicate on our behalf. I'm never the first one to stand on the stage and say, oh, by the way, here's a problem that we're working on solving and here's how we solved it and here's what it means to you. We get the clinicians to talk to their peers and tell them, hey guys, here's a, here's a problem. I still remember the day that Dr. Shabit stood in front of all of the nurses and the physicians and he had a picture of a burning platform. And he said, we have a burning platform. We have an issue. Here's our data. And of course, everybody in the room was like, oh my God, 
let's solve this, right? So we, that's a great example of how we do that in informatics. That is exactly what I do. I say, here's a problem. What do you all think? Hey, should we get together and solve it? And, and, yeah. and there's, a, there's a common term that I use whenever I go out and speak to people is I say, you know, informatics is something that you do with the clinicians, not to them. So that, that's an important aspect of, of what informatics is. And of course, I'll address the second half of the question that Dr. Shabat posted, which is, how do you know what's going on? And that's where the data comes into play as well. Um, we had built this catalog of over 200, 250 clinical decision support alerts that fire to that, that showed up to every single clinician in, in our healthcare system. Well, we actually built a, a, a robust dashboard that showed how many times each alert was firing, what time of the day, who was seeing it, and how many were they seeing per day, per encounter, per, per, uh, per patient. And that way we could quickly understand if there was somebody who was having some undue burden because of the work that we're doing. And it led us to create an optimization project where we went back and actually optimized all of these interventions that we had built. So, I mean, you will always see it's about problem solving to see if you're successful, see if, you know, their failures, and then it, see if there are any opportunities for performance improvement. And this is where the performance improvement comes into play. By having that data continuously available at your disposal, you can quickly go back and identify those opportunities for improvement and just make things better until you get to the top. Yeah, I had, had a one uh, add-on to that, and uh, and that is that um, when clinicians bring Siraj a problem or an informatics department a problem, and informatics helps solve it with a reminder or an alert or a change in the data, the the great thing about it is the physicians then become advocates for it, hmm. and they also feel like they've been listened to, and 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 re-energized, reauthorized. Uh, and it's a it 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 um, for the clinical staff, whether it's nursing physicians or others, when their suggestions are put into place, not just for them but for the whole system, there's a really a, a good feeling about that for the organization for them in the organization. They become they become the people that advertise it. And actually, that's that's kind of an interesting lead into a question I have around how data can help your systems and your behaviors. I think we've, we've talked a little bit about how data can impact behavior, but I'm wondering how behaviors and systems are important to making the data valuable as well and, and how it's sort of like an ecosystem. Can you, can you speak to that a little bit? All right. Is that, is that question for me? Mm -hmm. They're yeah. all, okay. I'm, I'm, they're all, okay. they're all okay. you and okay. then Rod Michael are just here to, here to just. Okay. All right. So yes. Um, yeah, that's a that's a tough one, but I, I I will approach it with they're all interdependent on one another. So okay. people, systems, data, behaviors, right. they're all interdependent. Uh, sometimes you do have to make systems um, that will allow you to capture the appropriate data. Um, a classic example of that is uh, work that a lot of healthcare organizations have done in in the country and you know all over the world, and that is documenting all of the precautions that you take uh, before you insert a central line for your patients. A central line is, is like a, 
is like a life-saving mechanism to provide nutrients and you know medications to a patient when all of the peripheral IV lines and everything else doesn't work, you put in a central line because that's the last resort. But if you don't do it well, uh, you can introduce a whole lot of infections and people will die unnecessarily. So one of the things that we, you know, unearthed when we were setting out to solve the problem of central line, you know, bloodstream infections, associated bloodstream infections or CLAPSIs as they're called, is how do we capture the data associated with the central line insertions? And unfortunately, there wasn't a, a good way or a structured way of documenting it. So they actually went out and created a documentation bundle. And so we had to create a brand new system for documenting all of the steps associated with you know, the sterile process of inserting a central line. And of course, you also have to know who is inserting the central line and who is assisting with inserting the central line. And then there's like about 12 or 13 questions. And so we didn't have that data to, to really understand, you know, are we following the appropriate precautions? Well, we build those documentation bundles. So going back to your question, sometimes you do have to build a system and you right. take that system and work with the people to make sure that they are in agreement. It goes back to the problem. Here's the problem. Here's how we're going to solve it. And having those people amenable to entering these 13 brand new data fields, right? So once once they're agreeable to it and they all buy into solving the problem, then you have data being generated because that's not data we had. And once the data gets generated, you're feeding it back to those people and you're making amendments to the system, right? So um, I remember when we introduced this, we had, I think, only eight questions. And then we started to collate the data. And then, of course, there's always new research, new evidence being published. So you know, we modified it further. I remember the use of an ultrasound prior to inserting a central line became the premise of reducing those infections even further. So guess what? We added an additional question that stated, did you use an ultrasound prior to inserting the central line? And of course, there were people in the room who were like, what? One more question? And what? I have to use an ultrasound now? I've done it for all these years. I've never right. had to use an ultrasound. So of course, you know, you, you have those conversations, you get people, you know, bought into it, you leverage, you know, peer pressure uh, to get them okay. to use it. But, okay. you know, once you start to look at the data and there is a direct correlation between um, 100% of the time we're following the sterile precautions for central line insertion, 100% of the time we are using the ultrasound prior to the central line insertion so that we don't get any complications, if we see a cause and an effect in the data, that's mm -hmm. a no-brainer. Yeah. Um, these practices definitely reduce our risk of central line associated bloodstream infections, which can be fatal. Right. So, I, I mean, that, that's how you build. I, I, I hope that example helped you identify how the interplay is between those three. Yeah, it's, it's uh, I, I'm just going to say, <clears throat> Frank, just if you if you think of the system as all the things that are going on in the right. health system, the data is, is just numeric, right? It, it right. Whether you capture it or not, the system is emitting this this data. And so I, th I think the problem that we we have in healthcare is a lot of times people bring confirmation bias to the data. They say, OK, I'm only going to look at the data that supports my cause. I'm only going to support 
I really want the system to change this approach. And if I can find even small bits of data that are imprecisely analyzed to make that point, I'll do then that. You're push and, it, right? Yeah, and so the what we then have is sort of a faulty system because it, it's really put in place without a true understanding of the data. And then secondarily, it doesn't really take the personal aspect of the people that are having to work within that system. So in, in high reliability, one of the one of the principles is this deference to expertise. And so once we have a systemic change that we want in place, we really have to run it by the physicians and the clinicians and other people in place there. And if we have that psychological safety, that culture where transparency and truth is there, then they're able to say, yeah, that really won't work. Or yeah, let's try this. Or no, the way you're interpreting that data is, is faulty because all data has to be interpreted and sometimes it, it can be used for uh, wrong causes in the development of that system. And uh, Rod brought up a very important point. He talked about transparency of the data, which is, and transparency of information, which is just totally crucial to high reliability and safety. I've been in organizations where um, results were, clinical results were kept under lock and key. And it sounds like I'm making that up. But I'm not. As, a, as a, a chief officer, I had to go to individual uh, locations and ask for it to be unlocked so that I could review it, although not copy it, uh, you know, just like for eyes only. And these are, you know, clinical quality results. And um, uh, that, that, is, that doesn't work in a high reliability organization. There has to be that trust. And um, not only uh, not only the will to improve, but also forgiveness for what's happened in the past. Those things are just absolutely crucial for high reliability organizations. I had the opportunity yesterday to listen to a presentation on high reliability from uh, an individual who's on the uh, National Transportation Safety Board, the NTSB, who served as the chair of the NTSB for years. And uh, he talked about transparency in the uh, commercial airline industry and said something that I didn't know and that, you know, we all know about the black boxes, which are recovered, uh, God forbid, if there's a crash. What I didn't know is that for routine flights, when they pull into the gate, the black box data is uploaded to and, and, uh, and de-identified. Um, as in terms of the personnel, so that they can see if there's an incidence of landings that are too fast or whatever, whatever, whatever comes out of the data. And so that they can implement um, uh, safety procedures in general, not just punitive to one individual. And, you know, that kind of transparency of data and, and analysis, you know, we don't do, in, in my view, we don't do enough of that in healthcare. And we really need to, but it's it's people like Siraj and the kind of position that Siraj is in that can help make that happen. Yeah, Are you doing very, that? It's it's very interesting to me because it 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 seems like I mean you you talked about how systems kind of you know when when the when the data is there you have systems that help lead to to right behaviors that actually end up saving lives, right? The information is presented in such a way where people recognize the value of it. And then that behavior is able to then 
illustrate opportunities to improve the system so that people are able to stay engaged mm -hmm. to it. And you brought up some words like trust and forgiveness, and, and I'm hearing things like empathy as we're talking about this. And it it sounds a lot more human than most people think when, when you think about data and how it informs decision-making, this sounds more like a human thing than a cold robotic thing. And that to me is very fascinating. Yeah, it's really human behavior sheds numbers, right? These numerics that come out and, and we capture them as data or we don't, or we ignore them or we deploy them in the wrong fashion. And so the, the problem with sort of that suppression that Michael just mentioned is data in the past has very often been used for punitive measures. Mm -hmm. It's it's the I got you. And so when people have found history to teach that to them, then they automatically want to suppress that data or they want because I, you know, just imagine if you're a, a physician and you've invested hundreds of thousands of dollars and years and years of training in this. And now all of a sudden you're fearful that this new computer system is going to fire off these error codes and somebody's watching those thinking, oh, well, Dr. Shabbat had 200 of those. And, and so maybe he's not a great doctor. And so there's this, this misunderstanding or uh, suspicion about how data will be used that I, that I think probably rightly so suppresses people from embracing it until people like Siraj come along and convince them that there, there is this trust. There's a, he, he has a, a relationship with his medical staff that has to be built on trust. Uh, otherwise they think it's going to be used against them. Yeah. I'm wondering, I want to talk a bit about that. And, and how do you create a psychologically safe environment for, for those individuals, Siraj, when they're, you're, as you talked about uh, Rod earlier, something like this, you'd think people would be lining up, right? And ultimately it actually is a hard sell to get people to buy into the fact that this is for their good and it's for the benefit of everyone. So how do you create that psychological safety when it comes to um, bringing people on board with this? And, and, and then how is that actually kind of brought to the organization? Yeah, so I, I gave you the example of that physician in a public yeah. domain, you know, bringing up a topic and uh, I, I will use, I usually use the approach of, oh, that's great feedback. Could you tell me a little bit more? And then if I start to sense that there's a little bit more detail that's needed, that can be, you know, accomplished in a public domain, I will mm. typically say, all right, I'll talk to you offline and, um, and, and defer, right? Um, so what that allows me to do is, is do it at my own pace versus the pace of that public domain. And I will typically... Well, the first thing I do is I make sure I introduce myself. Uh, I let them know who I am, what my role is. Um, I, I will always do what I call my, my spiel. Like, so what I just described earlier on in the podcast about what is informatics, I will do that, uh, that elevator, elongated elevator speech, as I call it. Mm -hmm. But then um, if, if, if it's not possible to have that conversation right then and there, I make sure I follow up. And I, I set aside enough time to get to know the person. So if I'm really meeting some clinicians for the first time, you know, after those encounters, I, I take the time to get to know them. And I, I give them the opportunity to get to know me and, and why I do the work that I do and why am I even here doing what I do in my role. And th that's usually a really good icebreaker, for lack of a better term, 
Yeah. And then when, when, when I start hearing, you know, their issues and their problems, um, one of the first things I do is I, I empathize. I say, you know what, that must be so frustrating or, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that you're going through that. Well, let me figure out how I can help you. I think that's what clinicians need more than anything else. They want somebody who can listen to them. So part of my job, I mean, you read it out in my, in my bio, right? You said human relationships. Yeah. So that's what I try to do. It's a part and parcel of my day-to-day activities. I get to know people on a personal level also. I try to find out what some of their hobbies are. And, you know, I, I use that to sort of just build that trusting relationship. And then, you know, I will slowly ask for, hey, uh, you know, let me get your cell number. Here's my, here, here's my cell number. Why don't you, I mean, yeah, text me back so that, you know, we're in touch. I'd love to hear from you. I, I use the term love a lot in my conversations. If you were to ask my coworkers, they'll probably tell you, yeah, he uses love a lot. But it's just, um, you know, it puts the people at ease, right? It's a different kind of love. Uh, I really am looking forward to hearing from, uh, you know, my clinicians, the people that I work with. So I typically will leverage some of those just human relationships first to build that trust. And of course, like Dr. Shabin and Rod said, and once I deliver on something for them, then it's that's it. I mean, it, it's a done yeah. deal. It's like we're on a you know first name basis. We'll get text messages at odd times of the day. Of course, nobody does that now, but uh, I'm just saying it's a possible and, and I welcome it. If somebody were to message me on a Saturday, I will respond because I know that's how I continue to build on that trust. I feel like that's really helped me um, with my day-to-day job, my activities. Uh, that's something that I didn't do initially mm-hmm. uh, in my role. Uh, my initial experience from, from what I remember was, was very transactional. And I only realized that for me to be able to really you know, affect change, I have to work with these people a little bit more closely and I have to build their trust and they have to see me as someone who is their partner, who's willing to help them overcome issues and not as someone who just comes in to solve problems because I'm a problem solver and right. I will do it very trans- in, in a very transactional manner. So I feel, I feel like that, that really helps to build that trust. And um, it's, it's just one of the first things that I always do. You know, Siraj, while you're talking about that, it strikes me that your professional reputation, your role, your future career is highly dependent upon the accuracy of your data. So in other words, if you you bring a lot of stuff forward that's inaccurate, you're likely not going to have a job very long. But yet (laughs) the people that you're not the person that's inputting all the data, you're not at the source of all the data. So how do you balance that? How How do you keep data integrity when you don't have total control over the whole flow, just if nothing else to protect your job. Wow. Um, I I can tell you just, just the other day um, I had such a situation where, you know, we're presenting data and then it it took that one additional um, doubt or concern that I had because I looked at the data again and I, and I recognized some names and I, and I put some of my, you know, prior knowledge and experience with these folks. And I said, you know, that person doesn't 
sound like someone who would be doing this, right? So it was some type of a fallout. And I was just like, that doesn't sound like someone who would do this. And, and I actually picked up the phone and I called mm-hmm. them and I said, hey, I'm looking at this data and, you know, I got to ask, do you remember why you may have done this way? And, and of course, I, I, I told them, look, I'm not calling you for any punitive reasons. This is just for my own education. I'm trying to find out if my data is inaccurate, right? And so, um, so we go over it, and he, you know, he tells me that, oh yeah, that order, I I remember discontinuing it, and I was just like, oh boy, are we including discontinued orders in our data set? Wow. Okay, that's Uh not good. So. I immediately, I immediately went back to the team and I said, hey, does this data report include discontinued orders? And of course, the answer was, yes, it does. And I'm mm. like, hmm, that's, that's, that's going to be a problem. Can we edit this report really quick? I, I want to see how different it looks with the discontinued orders. And, and of course, you have to be careful to understand that by excluding the discontinued order, are you excluding something that may be telling a bigger story? So Obviously, we're in the midst of doing that now, but when we reran the report without the discontinued orders, this physician that I knew was like 100% perfect, right? So how do I balance that? I, I think you never take data as its face value. Um, you definitely want to spend some time, um, what I like to call a sanity check. And if the sanity check um, goes okay, then you still want to spend some time uh, doing what I like to call chart audits. So look at the data, look at the events that transpired in the medical record, and make sure that they both coincide. Um, oftentimes, we'll find that you know there's a there isn't a direct correlation between what's in the chart versus what's in the data. So sometimes it might require you to go back, talk to the clinical users, and understand. Can you walk me through the sequence of your workflow with which you documented? And then we may end up also going back and saying, hey, it looks like there might be a data field or a column that we, you know, we left out that doesn't tell us the full story. Um, I will tell you, yes, my entire career does depend on data accuracy. But remember, the whole beauty of engaging the clinician early on in this process is they become a part of that data validation yeah. So if the data is wrong, guess what? We're all wrong. So it's not somebody pointing their finger at Siraj and his team. Mm, so um, so building that, again, it goes back to that relationship and working yeah. with them on the solution. They become a part of that solution. So, you know, somebody will say, you know what? Uh, we validated that data with uh, Siraj and his team. That's probably something we didn't think of. We'll go back, we'll revise it, and we'll rerun the reports. It's all about accepting, you know, when you do go wrong. I think that's a part of um, our role also as, you know, inform- informaticists and informaticist leaders. We shouldn't, I mean, it goes both ways. We also should should not be hesitant to to say, yes, we've made a mistake or right. feel feel vulnerable, right? Because, yeah, by admitting that you made a mistake, you know, you are vulnerable. You're like, oh, my God, is somebody keeping track of how many times we've made a mistake? But I think you learn from your mistakes. Um, and again, that also helps to build that trust. You're like, hey, Siraj and his team are not afraid to admit when they've made a mistake and they're working on fixing it. 
So they can be, you know, honest and upfront with us and tell us if they've made a mistake. I mean, yeah, love it. Mistake, mistakes happen. So that, that, that's, 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 that's what I would say. Not, sometimes it's, uh, I'm recalling a situation where it, it's, it's not, well, not even directly in, under your control. Um, again, with the inputs, they're, they're not only the inputs that come at the front end from clinicians or from other systems that are putting data in. And of course, there's analysis on the back end. But in between, there are databases and interfaces. And I recall a situation with Siraj where one well-behaved alert that had been all tuned up and was going along fine. You'll remember this, Siraj. At some point, some date, it just went off the rails and it began alerting all the time, two or three, four times what its baseline alert rate was. And that was due to either a, a, an, op, an operational system upgrade, a database upgrade, or, or a change in the formulation of the drug in the pharmacy. And that required a fix, but in the, in, until, until it was caught by your routine monitoring, I remember the graph that yep. just on a given date went off the rails. Yep. yep. Those things happen and they will continue to happen in, 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 in systems as complex as uh, a hospital and health system, where there are many, many different, uh, not only inputs, but things that happen to the data on the way to the analysis charts. Yeah, I remember that incident like it was yesterday, and those are not uncommon to your point. They will happen just because there are complex systems, lots of moving parts, uh, but it's important for you to have that, that data architecture uh, in place to help you identify those errors earlier on rather than, you know, waiting for weeks or months where our clinicians are suffering and they're just too busy to pick up that phone and tell someone, hey, what's going on with the system? This is ridiculous. And I remember nobody reported it. I mean, yeah, that no, went found, off the charts. Yeah. Nobody told us. And it was it was happening for, I think, two to three weeks yeah. until oh we goodness. got the data. And, and I was just like, oh, my goodness, why didn't anybody tell us anything? It was like, again, we have to empathize with these clinicians, the poor folks. They're just doing so much. They're like, ha, ah, it's okay. I'll just keep going. I'll just keep going. And, and it's our responsibility to be responsive when we do find out those kinds of issues that we fix them quickly as a priority. So, yeah, that's a, that's a great example, Dr. Shabbat. I had forgotten about that. Let me ask for another question about um, a, a different kind of question. On the other end of, your, of the analysis, uh, you know, one of the problems of electronic health records is that there's just terabytes and terabytes and terabytes of data. And, um, and it can become mind boggling as, as results go up to the C-suite as to you know, what to look at, how to look at. I mean, I've seen dashboards that have seven, 800 data items on them, numeric items that couldn't possibly be you know, uh, uh, intelligently assembled in someone's mind on a monthly basis. How do you make the data understandable for and actionable? Yes, that is a, uh, a common problem. Uh, I'm sure every healthcare organization is facing it today and now. Um, and, and it boils down to one thing, right? Um, the people who are the audience of the data, I think it's important to ask them for their feedback. And oftentimes, yeah, some, some, some people will say, 
Yeah, there's too much on that report. Uh, what should I be worried about or what should I be proud of? I mean, those are the two things that you, you always want to be able to quickly identify. What should I be worried about and what can I, you know, um, celebrate? So I'll tell you that um, what we've been doing is as more and more data, more and more metrics become available, it's important to, you know, obviously identify those success and failures. And so we've been adding an additional layer of what I like to call um, mathematical models or statistical, um, you know, analyses that really help us to call out the problem areas. Now, you know, you can always have random variations, right, in, in the data or mm -hmm. events. Um, and it's important that you not become, you know, overtly excited or disappointed with those random variations. And we see that all the time. So what we've started to do is to actually look at all of those different data sets and, you know, do some simple regression models to really understand, um, are there statistically significant increases or decreases? So of course, if there are increases in the wrong direction, you want to pay attention to it. And if there are, you know, reductions in the right direction, you celebrate it and you say, well, that's good. I'm just going to lean back and, and enjoy this moment. But um, I think it's important to really focus on, you know, what's meaningful. As an example, uh, if, we, if you find, you know, just raw numbers, um, they, may, they may tell you something or they may not tell you anything. But when you have a, a more easy to understand metric that, hey, you know what, right now it looks like, you know, we're, we're at a five or six times higher uh, chance of getting a, a, a bed ulcer while you're in the hospital, mm -hmm. in our hospitals. I'm totally making that up, right? Um, you obviously want to do something about it versus, yeah, we're at like, you know, 1.1 times more likely, but, you know, the, the, feder the federal government and everybody else who will penalize us if we go higher than 1.2, you'd rather focus on, I mean, leverage all of your resources to solve the problem that's five times more likely to happen versus the one that's 1.1. So having that, that power uh, of, of knowledge and insights available to the people who can make the difference, I, I think is something that we have to start doing because, you know, there's just so much more data and metrics coming on. I think you have to start calling out what is something to celebrate about and what is something that you should, you know, put 100% of your attention onto. And uh, that's something that we're, you know, actively working on right now. So it's, it's very beneficial to, to focus, to, to, to really focus our attention on. Well, well gentlemen, this, this has been very fascinating. I, I am not um, in the healthcare space and, and even just listening to the conversation that we're having today, I, I found it kind of funny uh, somewhere in one of your stories that you were telling Suraj, uh, I started thinking about the fact that um, if data has humanity built into it and human relationships are at the heart of data, then you have no excuse for bringing humanity to your workplace. When it comes to, if, if data has human like relationships built into it and that's how you make data work, then it's probably something you should consider as you're working, maybe not in the data field, maybe not in the healthcare space, but 
in any organization, in any any relationship that you're working with other human beings, you know, it's so interesting because informatics is relationship building. Like, it, like that's that's what you're ending up doing is building relationships to the data, to the behaviors of the team members, to the mindsets and attitudes that people have in regards to how they perceive that data. And then when people are able to feel that trust and, and engagement with you and you're creating essentially a change network of people who will constantly be able to feel like they can bring you the information that you need to do your job even better. It's fascinating to me when you build advocates and when you create an environment where people feel like they can bring their failures, they can bring their frustrations to a safe place and have them addressed and answered in a very unique way. I mean, it's, it's really cool. I, I, I honestly was a little worried coming in that a lot of this would be challenging to kind of understand. But when I'm listening to what all three of you have been talking about, we're really talking about addressing how we can make systems work for building better behaviors that impact patient outcomes and patient safety, right? And, and creating an environment where clinicians feel like their voices can be heard mm. and they can be a part of the solution instead of pushing back against the problem. Well, well said, Frank. That is a that is a absolutely perfect synopsis of what we've been talking about. And so, I, gentlemen, I I think now is the best time to say thank you, because uh, I, I appreciate all the time that you've been able to 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 give to us today on our podcast. Uh, so, Dr. Rob Brace, Dr. Michael Shabbat, Siraj, um, I, I just so appreciate your time and energy and passion uh, for this conversation and this topic and. Here at Love is a Business Strategy, we're posting new episodes every Tuesday. If there's a business topic that you'd like to have us cover, maybe something that's a little bit atypical or tangential to what a typical business conversation is, we would love to talk about it. Let us know at softway.com slash L-A-A-B-S, softway.com slash labs. And if you liked what you heard today, please do leave us a five-star review and subscribe on Apple and Spotify. And if you know someone who might enjoy this content, don't forget to share the love as a business strategy, pun intended. So gentlemen, thank you all so much. And for those listening and watching, we'll see you next week.